Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. This is episode 27. Today, Danny and I present part one of our sit down with Scott Horton, host of Any War Radio on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, also known by its podcast name, The Scott Horton Show. Scott has hosted Any War Radio since 2003 and has done in excess of 4,800 interviews with war correspondents of all stripes. His book, Fool's Errand, Time to End a War in Afghanistan, is an amazing collection on the history of the war in Afghanistan, how presidential decisions from Carter to Trump have destroyed the greater Middle East, and how the American people were deceived by their leaders about both the premise of the war and the actual history of it, which is now just past its 17th anniversary. Scott is also Managing Director of the Libertarian Institute at libertarianinstitute.org and Editorial Director of Antiwar.com, where both Danny and myself, but mostly Danny, have published pieces on the American war state. Scott has an amazing mind and recalls even the tiniest details about his research and reporting on Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Somalia, and so forth. Please do listen to a show on 90.7 if you're in the L.A. area. If not, grab your podcatcher app and add the Scott Horton Show to your podcasts. Rifle upon my shoulder And a rucksack on my back And a hellhound on my track When I made it to my home place I found triumph of the will Where once lay a shining city Stood a fortress on a Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. For those new to the show, Danny and I are two progressive veterans who take the military and veteran stories of the day and add some much needed context. So, hey, Scott, thanks for coming on the show, man. Um, I've been on yours several times and uh, we've just been really excited to get you on uh, on Fortress on a Hill. So thank you again. Hey, really happy to be here and uh, good to see you, Danny. And uh, nice to meet you, Christopher. You too, man. So, you know, you and I have talked about this before, but, you know, you're, you're not a veteran, um, and yet you've written this really important, I think, book on the war in Afghanistan. So this, this is, I guess, kind of a personal question. I guess what I'm interested in is, you know, how did you come to a place where this, you know, was so important to you? And, and how did you manage to write such an important book on the war, you know, without having been there? You know, because it's the book reads like, you know, exactly what you're talking about. Like you have a lot of personal experience. And so that's always kind of fascinated me and impressed me. Hmm. Well, um, I mean, I guess I just kind of have an advantage in that I knew enough about the Afghan war of the eighties when I was a kid and I knew enough about the narrative that I don't know if this is very popular anymore, but in the 1990s, 
Now, right wingers would say that it was the Reaganite arms buildup and support for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and that war. They made Rambo three about it and everything that had helped break the back of the Soviets, give them their own Vietnam and all of that. So I already understood all that before the war started and I already understood that Afghanistan is the size of Texas and has mountains and deserts and all this bad lands and and tribal warrior cultures that. I mean, the whole thing is stupid from the very beginning. And I remember actually I was driving a cab and um, one of the most prominent radio guys in Austin, at least at the time, I don't know anymore, was a guy named Bob Cole, who was the morning uh, host on the country music station. And he's hugely influential. And I remember having him in my cab and he was just all gung ho for every slogan on the radio about what's going on post 9-11 and everything changed and blah, blah, blah. And I'm going, look, man, these guys are already at the top of mountains shooting down. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's no more possible for the U.S. Army to conquer Afghanistan, you know, on any kind of permanent basis than it would be for the Afghans or anyone else to take Texas or Colorado from us. It's just never going to happen. It's crazy to, to even want to try that. The, the, the goals of this mission should be a hell of a lot more limited. And then I've been on radio ever since then. I started my radio show, the interview. I mean, I was doing radio all along, but um, I started the interview show. Um, in 2003. And so I was just interviewing every expert that I could find on all of the wars. Uh, really. So, you know, in and out through this whole time. So I know Eric Margulies, who, you know, spent the 1980s covering the war from the Mujahideen's point of view, fighting against the communists who wrote war at the top of the world. So I had him like first and foremost as my guide uh, with the story. And then uh, there's the great reporter Anand Gopal and, you know, a lot of others. Um, who've done a lot of great work in just explaining kind of who's who. And I'm always looking for the balance of power among the political factions. And, you know, part of it too, I think, is because I'm a libertarian and I'm, I'm very in, uh, influenced by Austrian school economics, which basically holds it that government shouldn't exist at all. And that anything they do in the market is an artificial disruption that will have to be corrected for at some point. So I look at American intervention the marketplace of Afghan power as being a distortion and a disruption to the quote unquote natural order of things or as close as you could get in a country like Afghanistan. And that basically by invading, we're propping up people who need us to prop them up. Otherwise we wouldn't be propping them up. And so uh, that creates a situation where, um, you know, we end up having to stay. And I guess I also had it to contrast with Iraq war II where as ham-handed as the whole damn thing was, made sense at the end of the day, it purely not made sense, but it was just mathematically, it was a thing that it, since we're fighting on the side of the Shiite supermajority against the Sunni minority, the Kurds basically sitting it out, um, and, but fighting against the Sunni Arab minority, um, that that's going to work, right? Like at some point, the Shia are going to win, they're going to take Baghdad, and the Shia will be pissed, but that's all they'll be able to be. Um, but in Afghanistan, you just don't have that. In Afghanistan, the war is against the Pashtuns, and they're the single largest ethnic group in the country, 40%, the plurality of the country. And so we're trying to foist a minority coalition government on the plurality of the country that likes to fight, or at least would much rather fight than submit anyway. And so, I mean, that's what else do you need to know? And then watch that same war from even from Texas. Lived in California for a little while, but watch that same war from this perspective all the way in 
day in and day out for 15 years, 18 years, 17 years now, whatever. Um, you know, none of this is hard to see. I never was in a position where in 2010, I was like, didn't know. And so I thought, well, maybe coin will work. Like, no, yeah, I knew it would not work. Of course, you know, I, that, I never had that problem of like getting over being wrong on. I was right on it from the beginning. So when I wrote the book, I already knew my narrative. You know, I've been covering this world long, talking to all these reporters on my show, which is a real cheat. I mean, who gets to do that all the time? Interview journalists day in, day out like I do. Um, and so I already knew the story. So I wrote the first rough draft and then I stopped and I read about 20 books about it. And so I made, took a bunch of notes and made some corrections to some things that were wrong and really fleshed out a lot of details and wrote it until I thought that it was essentially the same narrative I started with, but just was done by the time I was done, you know, with that. And then I did send it to Patrick Coburn and to Anand Gopal and to Eric Margulies and to, um, I guess, Daniel Davis, who was, uh, you know, the heroic uh, Lieutenant Colonel who blew the whistle at the end of the surge in 2012. Um, can't remember if I had Matthew Ho look at it for me. Uh, he was obviously experienced state department in Afghanistan there after being a Marine in Iraq. Um, but so I had, you know, my, my best journalist, uh, guys that I know about Afghanistan, uh, read it and tell me I wasn't wrong. <laughs> so, you know, that was good enough for me to publish it. Um, and you know, it's gotten a really good response, um, you know, from across the board, uh, haven't really had any kind of negative response so that I can really think of. And, um, and it's been endorsed by, you know, Douglas McGregor and Colonel Wilkerson, both colonels, and then Lieutenant Colonel Davis. And, uh, let's see, um, Major Todd Pierce and Captain Matthew Ho and all these guys, but also a lot of enlisted guys too. And I've talked to a lot of enlisted guys. I've talked to Green Berets and Rangers and regular army and Marines. Um, my good friend now, Adam House, who is a army specialist from the Korangal Valley campaign in Afghanistan. And I'm going to say 2007 or eight, um, you know, wrote a great review of the book and, and all of that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty proud of that. Well, it's so clear that you did your research and, you know, I've told you this before. I'm of the opinion that sometimes, you know, guys who write from the perspective of solely their own experience in Afghanistan, Iraq, wherever, actually miss the big picture. And so in some sense, there's a benefit for like an outsider, for lack of a better word, to synthesize all this expert knowledge that you pulled in from journalists, from veterans, from the 20 books you read. And actually, in the end, uh, that, that actually creates a more holistic and syncretic look at the war. And so, you know, I'm always pushing back at the notion that my credibility rests on the fact that I'm a veteran. I like to think that my credibility rests on that, but as well as on like my broader study. And so that's, what's so clear about your book. Um, it's, it's, it's actually, it was supposed to just be chapter two of the book that I'm now writing again, which is a book about the entire war on terrorism. But I mean, honestly, Danny, I just got stuck in the Afghan quagmire as uh, <laughs> people, as Americans are wont to do, I guess. And so, you know, the first part of the book, getting into this mess, Carter through Bill Clinton, that was really the introduction to the whole terror war. And then chapter two was Afghanistan. And I just started writing it and writing it and writing it. And I guess I got it in my head that like 
some jerk from CNAS is going to read this. So I have to just double, triple, extra prove everything beyond any kind of shadow of a doubt. So I just got into too meticulous a detail. And so chapter two turned into 500,000 or uh, sorry, 50,000 words or I guess it's 100,000 words now. So I just said, oh, well, hell, I guess I'm writing a book about Afghanistan. But, right. you know, you're raising an important point because I think a lot of people think if you're not a journalist who covered the Afghan war from Afghanistan and you're not a soldier, what the hell do you know about it? And the best you heard my best answer is, well, I covered it on the radio all along and I was right all along. So that's, you know, something. But that's a lot better argument if that's my excuse. But then I can say, so that's how I'm able to speak to Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, Syria, Mali, Iraq War Three, all these things. If I was a Marine in Afghanistan, I wouldn't be able to tell you about the rest of these things. If I had been a reporter in Iraq War Two, I wouldn't be able to tell you all this other stuff about Afghanistan, Somalia, whatever. I kind of had to stay home to have sort of this holistic view of the terror war that, you know, I mean, I'm not saying it's that unique. There's a lot of people who say the same stuff as me because they're also correct. You know, right around here. So I'm not like trying to say it's that special or whatever, but I'm saying it's kind of, it's, it's, it, it would have been very difficult, right? For me to have studied what was going on with the Christmas war in Somalia in 2006. If I had been running around Ramadi at the time myself, you know what I mean? I might not have made it back at all. So. Right. Well, and it's so key that you see the linkages because what I agree with is that you can't look at any of these conflicts in isolation. You know, they're all connected. They're all part of the same sort of messianic American exceptionalist ideology and misunderstanding of the greater Middle East. So, you know, I I think it's really important that you see the connections. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the whole thing. I actually just finished interviewing Stephen Walt and um, I disagree with him on some things. I mean, he's uh, not a non-interventionist the way I am, but uh, obviously his foreign policy of realist restraint and offshore balancing is far more peaceful than the current American policy of hegemony. And in fact, I I guess I didn't really, I was arguing with him so much about other stuff. I didn't really get a chance to say to him, like how really eye opening his new book is, it's called the hell of good intentions. Um, And, and it's so eye opening in just the very frank manner in which he speaks about American grand strategy that like, it's absolutely beyond controversy that, Oh, we didn't have to do this. We don't have to have men with boots on shore in the Middle East anywhere. Some people thought we did, but nope, other people disagreed. We can have a policy where we just have aircraft carriers and we just make sure that no one country in the Middle East dominates all of the rest of them, which is easy since none of them have the capability of doing so anyway. Uh, And so we didn't have to do this at all. It's just, see, what happened was there was a disagreement among policy intellectuals about what our grand strategy should be. And they all agreed that we should have benevolent, global, liberal, primacy, hegemony. But some of them thought that we, that means we need a bunch of Marines on the ground in Iraq. And some of them thought we didn't. Nah, nah, it turns out we didn't. And I mean, I have to say, like, to me, uh, obviously I'm up to my eyeballs in this stuff all the time. And that's my whole argument all the time is it doesn't have to be this way at all. Right. But then here, you know, the, here's the guy from the Kennedy school at Harvard, or I'm sorry, I think it's the Kennedy school at Harvard teaching foreign policy where, you know, it's kind of beyond a controversial thing. He's just saying, well, yeah, of course we, we didn't have to do this. What happened was we had this grand strategy instead of that grand strategy. Now, like to me and knowing both of you guys are combat veterans, like, 
that sounds like a pretty bitter pill to swallow. They're like, but I thought that we were sent to defend freedom, to defend America from those who attacked it, from terrorists who threatened it. But now you're telling me like, you have some kind of grand strategy for primacy in Eurasia. Like, what does that even mean? What, we're the middle part of North America. How could that be what my friends died for over there? You know, you told me Saddam was going to give chemical weapons to Osama and he was going to we needed plastic duct tape and sheeting to cover our houses because they were coming this way. I don't know how the hell they were going to get across the Atlantic. But anyway, um, so, yeah, I mean, that to me is like it just goes to show that when the adults are having their fancy brunches at their country clubs and their little meetings and they talk about this stuff, that, as he put it, it's no conspiracy to them. It's just consensus. It's just what they agree is the right thing to do. And the fact that the way they frame it to each other of what they're doing is not quite the way they frame it to you. Well, doesn't even amount to deception, really. It's just, you know, that's kind of how it is. Come on, boys. We got to go defend the people. So I think we we have to deliberately get away from leaders who say out in public, like Hillary Clinton did, that I have a public persona. And I have a private persona and doesn't allow people to see the actual difference. But with the first iota of that, you're done. You're gone. We're, we're not right. going to play this, this game anymore. Yeah. Um, so in, in, in reading Fool's Aaron, which I really enjoyed, especially that you read it, it really it made it more personal, more emotional listening to you tell the story. I learned so much about the war that I didn't know, but specifically about Pakistan being involved and about the embedded Pakistan officers that got evacuated prior to major U.S. operations starting, the uh, Saudi Arabia directly funding the Taliban at one point. And the worst part of it, and this goes to what we were just talking about, um, was the mention about Bruce Rydell conflating al-Qaeda in Afghanistan with with the Pakistani Taliban, with the Afghan Taliban, and creating this justification that if Obama had been shown that the full, this is the reality, Maybe it would have gone differently, but I, 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 what I'm trying to get at is about the what presidents uh, actually know and what they don't know, and how that their own cabinet keeps that away from them at times. Yeah, well, and you know the whole policy has been completely incoherent there. Um, when when the Saudis and the Pakistanis started backing the Taliban. That was with the full approval of the Bill Clinton administration in the 1990s, because, you know, people often confuse the Taliban with the Mujahideen who fought the war in the 80s. And some of the leaders of the Taliban did, in fact, fight in the war, but they weren't really the Mujahideen warlords who led that fight. Yeah, and that was more people like Haqqani and um, uh, uh, Gubaldine Hekmetyar and these other guys. And so when the and 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 for that matter, Masood, even though he was actually a double agent working for the KGB all along, he was the guy that ended up leading the Northern Alliance um, uh, group in the north. Um, General Dostum, the current very powerful warlord and vice president, was a member of the communist army at the time. Uh, But anyway, so at the end of the war uh, with the Soviets, the Mujahideen all went to civil war with each other, fighting over the capital. Hekmatyar is called the Butcher of Kabul because he killed about 50,000 people just lobbing artillery shells into Kabul for like a few years or something, uh, trying to take it over in the early 90s. And then it was all just the worst gangsters and criminals and warlords who were taking over the country. 
And so in 1994, the Taliban, who were the religious authority, oh, see, part of this is the Russians had killed so many Pakistani tribal leaders that their whole system of power was completely broken. There was, and there was, so the power, the reason the criminals were getting away with so much, these warlords, was because all the tribal leaders who had the authority really to stop them were dead. And, you know, the Russians, the Soviets killed a million Afghans in that war, a million of them. Wow. And so, um, you know, that their whole systems of, of their culture, you know, and authority had been completely broken. So then Taliban rose up with the support of the Pakistanis to, and the support of the Americans to instill law and order and to create a monopoly government there. And even when there was an opportunity for negotiations, the Americans preferred that the Taliban not negotiate and that they go ahead and win the war, defeat Massoud and the Northern Alliance and consolidate power over the entire country and create stability so that they could build their pipeline from Turkmenistan down to the port of Karachi is what they wanted to do to spite the Russians which they blatantly said was all about spiting the Russians, uh, taking the oil out of the Caspian Basin there. And then, um, of course, that deal fell apart and the Taliban backed uh, Bridus. And, you know, Eric Margulies says it was bin Laden that convinced um, the Taliban to pick Bridus, the, um, I think, Argentine company to build the pipeline instead of Unical. And so that, you know, had begun to cause their problems. But in the grand chessboards of Brzezinski wrote in 1997 that America's interest in Afghanistan is clear. We must back the Chinese Pakistan Taliban axis to keep the Iranians, the Russians and the Indians out. And then so just four years later begins the exact opposite policy fighting for the groups that are backed by Iran, uh, Russia and India against our friends the Taliban and the Pakistanis. But then this gives, this really goes to your question. This is why the Pakistanis have this huge incentive to back the the Afghan Taliban resistance against their allies, the Americans in Afghanistan. And that is because America is pursuing an interest that's exactly the opposite of what Pakistan wants in creating a monopoly government allied with India. Because Pakistan's overriding concern is war with India. And if there's war with India, Afghanistan is their strategic depth. In other words, they flee across the Khyber Pass and hope that India won't nuke them in Afghanistan too, basically, um, in the event of a war. And so they have to keep the Taliban at play in Afghanistan to prevent Kabul from ever really consolidating control over the country in a way that would give the Indians this huge advantage over them. And then so what do the Americans do? I don't know, I'm trying to remember about under Bush right now, but Obama and, and Trump both have done the same policy, which is, oh yeah, well, we're going to bring in the Indians more. We're going to have them train the Afghan troops, which are you know basically a Tajik army, and we're going to ask for their support. Of course, we have all these sanctions on Russia, so we have to get the Indians to buy Russian helicopters for us to give to the Kabul government because the Blackhawks, they can't maintain. We can sell them, but we can't, you know, they can't really use the Blackhawks, so they need these old Russian helicopters. But anyway, um, and so this is our punishment against Pakistan for backing the Afghan Taliban, but this is their motive for backing the Afghan Taliban in the first place. And so we just go around and around and around. The more we ask the Indians to help us prop up the Kabul government to protect us from, and, and India and Pakistan are both our allies, right? And that's the joke here, right? Is we have, we have an ally backing our enemy 
to prevent us from helping our other ally consolidate a position in the country. So we asked that second ally to come and consolidate their position in the country, which motivates the first ally to back our enemy and all over again. So is that clear as mud? So you wonder why this thing's been going on for 17 years. There you go. This is the policy. Oh, and by the way, the tax man in half the country works for the Taliban and America pays taxes this whole time. America is paying protection money. I mean, literally taxes to the Taliban to let them travel and bring supplies and everything across the country. I mean, how do you get stuff to Helmand province? There's giant mountains. You have to go all the way around the Khyber pass through Pakistan. And then all the way, you have to drive these trucks hundreds of miles down to Helmand to get to supply the Marines there. You can't do it all with Chinooks and stuff, you know? No, no, no. And so they're paying the Taliban hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars in protection fees, financing the entire enemy side of the war just for the right to fight the war there. We'll pay you guys to let us fight you in Helmand. I guess we'll we, pay uh, you more than what you need to keep us at bay. We, we, we didn't pay enough for them not to uh, try to attack the senior commander in country. So right. yeah, it, it's, it's, it, changes nothing it's all this stupid fucking circular logic yeah it's it's absolutely insane and one of the stories in the book is and this is the kind of thing that like sounds like anti-war propaganda or like something that's just too too perfectly horrible to be true but one of these friendly fire attacks at least was the sex slave of a local police chief who murdered three marines who were working out they were in kandahar city at uh, you know a base near Kandahar City, I guess. And they were working out in the gym, and this boy is, I think, under fifteen years old. He's the kidnapped, tortured, raped sex slave of the local police chief. That those Marines' mission was installing in power over those people, and he shot them in the back and killed them. And like seriously, you know, the dad of those kids who said, "All right, go out there and do me proud, son." Like, that's what they get. Their son shot in the back by the sex slave of the guy that they were installing in power over the people of Kandar City. And I'm not actually certain at this moment whether it was Abdul Razak at the time. I don't think it was Razak's sex slave. I think it was somebody else. But, um, but anyway, I mean, and this kind of thing, you know, the insider attacks, I mean, as you guys know, um, are against the Afghan police as well. I mean, they get it, you know, and at least, and, and their soldiers and inside the ANA, they get in higher numbers than the Americans just because of access. I'm sure there's ones we haven't even heard about. Yeah. I mean, and just think of the disgrace of that, that that's the mission, you know, Pashtun culture has a real problem with that kind of thing, but it's certainly beyond the Americans ability to fix, not that they're trying to fix it. Their, their explicit orders are to ignore it and to be accomplices. Yeah. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's probably not right. And that maybe if that's the mission, maybe it's better to have called this thing off a long time ago. Yeah. How's all that for American values, right? We're fighting for pederasty uh, that we have to ignore by official orders. It's, it's, it's absolutely insane. I, I was invited to a, uh, a bocce boss party uh, early on in my tour by the local regulars. And I had to have my interpreter explain to me that it was about buggery of children while high on hash. And, you know, you're right. I mean, how, I, 
what do you say to the parent of those three Marines, right? What do you say to the parent of anyone who's dying in Afghanistan now? Which sort of brings you to my next question, which is, you know, maybe it sounds obvious, but you know, you have some expertise on this. And how do you sort of see or frame the current situation in Afghanistan? Like, where are we at? What is the status of that war? And like, what do people need to know? Well, Man, I think if we had a stalemate, that would be an improvement. I mean, it seems to me like the momentum is absolutely on the side of the Taliban-based insurgency, I guess it's fair to call it, uh, the Pashtun-based insurgency there, led by remnants of the former Taliban government. They rule more than half the country, um, you know, in the daytime and even more than that at night. They say uh, revised numbers have been printed recently, even in the New York Times, that like, hey, here's what the DOD says. Here's the reality of the situation. And they refrain mostly from seizing the provincial capitals because that, that will get the B1 bombers call out on them if they really seize these massive fixed positions at provincial capitals. They rule the entire countryside, um, dispersed out there, especially in the south and east, but making more and more gains. There are some posthume populations up in the north um, from previous eras of relocations and so forth. And so... You know, they've even, as we've seen in Kunduz numerous times where they've seized the city for a couple of weeks at a time and then did a bunch of damage and turned around and fled again. Saw a major, and we talked about this, Danny, on the show, the major Tet Offensive type strike um, on the capital city of the Ghazni province where they held it for about a week just to prove that they could. Um, This is, you know, I guess you correct me if I'm wrong. I think the next real major population center south of Kabul there. Um, right. There's no security in Kabul whatsoever. I mean, our guys take helicopters to go a quarter of the way across town and this kind of thing. They don't even do trucks and convoys to even go across the street. Uh, you know, you got to get in a tank to go anywhere, this kind of thing. Armored personnel carriers to do anything, go anywhere. And that's in the capital city. You got, hell, you have Gubaldine Hekmachar, the warlord we were talking about a minute ago, came with his group, Hizbi Islami, that had been fighting alongside Haqqani and the Taliban against and the Afghan Taliban against the U.S. this whole time. Well, he made peace a couple of years ago, year and a half ago, I guess, and came in from the cold. But part of the deal was ah, he gets to keep his militia, 20,000 men. And they're now sitting in the middle of Kabul with their, his own private you know, armed force there in competition with the aforementioned General Dostum, the former communist general who now is the vice president, former defense minister, the guy that committed the Afghan massacre where he uh, murdered all those alleged Taliban in the fall of 2001 under the watchful eye of American Green Berets. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so um, the, the government there costs um, uh, the international community, meaning mostly the American taxpayer, uh, picks up the absolute lion's share, like 90 something percent of the cost of the Afghan government. So without us support, it would cease to exist almost instantaneously. Um, you know, the, the army's attrition rates and casualty numbers have just gotten worse and worse over the past couple of years. They've just classified them because they don't want you to know how bad it's getting for the Afghan national army. Our guys can't train them because they shoot our guys in the back. Um, and so our guys have to, you know, stay at, at further distance and, and makes their job that much more ineffectual in terms of creating a national army, which is far past even the possibility of success proven by now repeatedly. Um, and so, you know, the question is, I guess, if the Americans left now, 
would the Taliban sack Kabul and, and take over the whole country all the way up to the Uzbek border and the rest of this and say, you know, create their, you know, truly recreate the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan as it was? Um, or would they be willing to settle for autonomy? I mean, I guess if it was me, I would just say, get all the troops out immediately and hope for the best. But I guess if there's to be a basis for peace negotiations, it seems to be, it seems to me that rather than saying, Hey, become a political party and join the government, which could really just, I mean, I don't see how that's workable at all without the Taliban just completely taking over. I mean, that's not even a Trojan horse. That's just doing it to yourself. Um, it seems to me like the best thing to do would just be to say, listen, you already own the South and the East. So let's just call it autonomous Pashtunistan and I'll be friends. And so you can be the dominant force in the area where you already obviously are. And, but just don't march on Kabul and don't march on and take over the predominantly Tajik and Uzbek and Hazara parts of the country where people would rather have independence from you. And since they're that divided by sect. And since the sects are that divided by territory, um, I said earlier, there are some exceptions, but still, then why not go ahead and have, you know, not split the country up into, into new countries, but just recognize the autonomy and just call time out and call, call a truce more or less where the lines are now, which seem to me to represent more or less um, you know, the correct power lines. I'm not saying that the particular Tajiks and Uzbeks and Hazaras that are in power would be the ones that were in power if America was out of the picture, that that's who they would come up with for their own leaders or if they would have a choice or what, I don't know. But, um, but you know, certainly they would probably prefer to have their own armed security forces from among their own people and their own autonomy. And, that to me would be like the best way to try to avoid further civil war. But honestly, and as I say it in my book, one, I don't expect the Americans to ever be willing to negotiate in good faith and deal with the Taliban and say, fine, we're leaving Bagram Air Base. You guys can have it. They're just never going to do that. Um, I just can't see them really being willing to give in to any specific Taliban demand such as get the hell out of the country before we promise anything or whatever kind of thing. So my answer to that is just leave. Don't negotiate with them. Don't lose face by giving in to them on anything specific. Just go and then hope that the Afghan government that's been propped up such as it is and such as it truly represents the people of the north of the country that, um, you know, that they'll be able to hang on to at least their own territory. Uh, maybe we could encourage our friends, the Pakistanis, to, you know, encourage the Taliban to restrain themselves. I mean, after all, look at how much trouble Kabul has had ruling Pashtunistan this whole time. Look how much trouble the Taliban had trying to take over the non-Pashtun parts of the country back in the 90s. Why not just leave each other the hell alone, you know? Devolve and decentralize power seems to me to be the only solution, but it's one that I don't think any side really wants, right? Just because I think it's wise. You know, Kabul wants to win. The Taliban wants to win. Pakistanis want their way. The Iranians want their way. The Americans want their way. And so, you know, I guess I hate to say, but I'm predicting the worst for a long time to come here. I don't think the Americans are leaving. I think that Trump wants to leave, but I think the Pentagon is just not going to let him.
And as, as Larry Wilkerson said on the show, this is all about China. This doesn't have a damn thing to do with Pashtun this or Hazara that or the Indians or the Pakistanis either. It's all about the Chinese want to build a freeway through here one day, you know, like in a hundred years or something. And so right. you have to stay to block that because if Eurasia trades, that somehow is a zero sum game that hurts American primacy and hegemony and dominance and blah, blah. It does seem like strategic inertia is really just behind this whole thing. I mean, there's no longer any actual argument for staying that makes any logical sense. You know, you've kind of already answered my next question, which was going to be, you know, predictions for the future. And it sounds like you agree with me in the sense that, you know, Afghanistan has never really been an effective entity ruled from the center. It's always had a lot of de-evolution, autonomy for the tribes. The only way Afghanistan has ever been viable in its past has either been through like massive dictatorial conquest or um, just decentralization. And so the idea that we were ever going to be able to put a Tajik dominated government in Kabul that was going to somehow have legitimacy in the South and the East was always a fantasy. Um, so it sounds like what you're saying is, you know, whether we like it or not, whether we agree to it or not, there's going to be some sort of division along geographic and therefore uh, sectarian and ethno sectarian lines. So we need to just accept that and, and move on. But I agree with you that the quote deep state or the bipartisan consensus on American interventionism is just never going to accept that, whether it's in the Pentagon or the Congress. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, I want to be clear that I, I really am not optimistic. You know, in other words, remember the housing bubble? Well, there's basically a power bubble in Kabul and there's a correction coming when American paper money and American military force stop propping up that bubble then it's going to come down really hard. And I don't ever want to like impugn the best of motives. Clearly the, the Taliban and the Pashtun resistance have, you know, a defensive argument on their side, but I don't want to give them any better credit than that. They're absolute war criminals uh, in the way that they attack civilians and use terrorist attacks and indiscriminate attacks against innocent people in order to have their way. And, you know, again, just because I think it's a good idea. I don't expect that they'll leave well enough alone. I think, you know, why not predict the worst? Because it's probably likely that they would try to march on Kabul and they just might take it. Um, but you know what? That's George W. Bush's fault. He didn't have to have a war with this insurgency at all. And that's one of the most important points of the book is that the Taliban surrendered. You know, Saddam Hussein back in 91 was famous for this phrase. This will be the mother of all battles. We will never surrender. Blah. Mullah Omar didn't talk like that. Mullah Omar was like, hey, you got me. Like once once the Air Force evaporated the first few troop divisions of his infantry, which he didn't have much in the first place, they were they were done. They were cooked. That was it. Guys out on an open field being, you know, um, jay damned right out of existence within a couple of weeks of the war beginning. And the Taliban just said, all right, well, our goose is cooked. That's it. They left the field and America installed a new government and they were wise enough. I guess um, Zalmay Khalilzad said the new leader has to be a Pashtun from the uh, Kandahar district, you know, so they or Kandahar province. So they brought in Hamid Karzai, uh, who is the son of a prominent Pashtun tribal leader. And so Mullah Omar recognized the new government as Islamic and legitimate. And said, basically, uncle, that's it. And he authorized virtually his entire cabinet to sign on to this letter surrendering. 
and saying some of them saying we would like I mean, I think basically said we would like to participate in the new government in some way, but we're not it's not an ultimatum. Kind of thing. We're just saying, leave us alone. We're done. We quit. We're not fighting you. And that was, and that was in the first and Anand Gopal is he's the guy that gets the credit for all of this. His book, No Good Men Among the Living and his reporting for the Wall Street Journal and the Christian Science Monitor. I mean, he's really the best on this. Um, and it took years, really it took till 2005 or so for the army to go out there and cause enough trouble that they really created this broad based Pashtun resistance against them in response. And, um, it's out of the mouths of the soldiers themselves. You know, they get there for a war on terrorism that had been won in the first couple of weeks. But here we are, we're a brand new Ranger division rotating in country. And you're telling me we don't have anybody to fight. Where are the bad guys? Show us some bad guys. And so, you know, whichever landowner or whichever politician or interested party or just neighbor with a grudge says, there's your terrorist enemy over there. And then the U.S. Army up and goes after him. And little do you know, they kill a bunch of innocent people, of course. And the next thing you know, things in that part of that district in that province are getting a little bit worse. And it took years and years and years of that before there was really a broad-based resistance against the Americans. So, you know, I don't know that the Kabul government would have ever really been able to consolidate power over the whole country. But, you know, we can't know the counterfactual. But in this version of reality, George Bush's army picked this fight. And they absolutely did not have to. And you know, it's the same thing everywhere. In 2016, I interviewed Betta Dam, who's a journalist from the Netherlands, who's you know been all over Afghanistan a million times and this and that. And she's telling me all about Nangarhar province, where now we have so-called ISIS-K, which are really a bunch of old Pakistani Taliban guys. Um, but they're so-called Islamic State there in Nangarhar province. This is the area near Tora Bora where Osama got away back in 01. And she's saying, so listen, ever since these guys called themselves ISIS-K, the Green Berets and the U.S. Air Force have been in there, bombed the hell out of them. And all it's done has made matters worse. It's gotten their organization bigger and bigger. It's grown more and more. And the bigger it gets, the more air power and the more Green Berets they send in to fight them. And they just, it's, they don't want to understand. The commanders don't want to see that what they're really doing is just, you know, watering the grass with blood, basically, and then mowing it and then watering it with blood again and then mowing it again. And instead, it's just, well, here's some bad guys. What are we going to do? Not hit them. We got to hit them. There they are. We'll hit them. And then, you know, and, and then she's right. Now, look at us after two years since she said that and reported about the beginning of the war against ISIS in, um, in Nangahar province. They're bigger than ever. Just as she said that they would, that they come in there, even General McChrystal, the leader of the surge under Obama said it's insurgent math. For every one you kill, you get 10 more. For every two, you get 20. And he was talking about killing actual fighters who are also, let's be honest, they're civilian militiamen. Just because a civilian has a rifle doesn't make them a professional soldier. These are civilian militiamen. We say, oh, they're fighting aged males or they're, you know, military age combatants or insurgents or whatever to deprive them of their humanity, separate them from civilian women and children, which they are, I guess, to a degree, but not the way that they try to, to play it. And so, but the, not just them, but, uh, you know, and then we, I mean, so the soldiers or the fighters, the insurgents, when you kill one of them, you get 10 more. What happens when you kill their wife and kids? You get 
even more than that. And that's General McChrystal himself, insurgent math. That was the basis for the coin. Now, the coin, the answer of using counterinsurgency is completely stupid. But the argument against the previous strategy by the coin proponents made a lot of sense, right? Which was, we don't have good intelligence. We're just bombing and killing innocent people or we're bombing and killing low-level ranking guys that are doing nothing to really you know, help the policy forward. We're just kind of on autopilot doing this and based on bad information. Now, their solution was we got to send in 150,000 guys and then we'll have enough information. Then when we have so many infantry on the ground, they will have good enough intelligence then to tell us who to kill. And then that way we can very carefully target the people we're killing so as to absolutely minimize this insurgent math, minimize this blowback and backdraft consequences from our actions making matters worse, but really try to just clean up the very baddest bad guys and win over the rest of the population. So that part of it obviously is silly, even it's so bankrupt and ridiculous The win over the part of the population. And even the part where if you have 150,000 men on the ground, they will then have good intelligence to tell you who to kill. That part is all ridiculous, right? Forget all that. But the first part about we don't have good intelligence. We're just killing people. We're not even sure who that part is absolutely right. And it was Michael Flynn, Trump's first national security advisor, who was at that time, Stanley McChrystal's right-hand man. And he derided the current policy as anti-insurgency, which is the poor idiots game, which is the, the, the dumb cashiered fired and out of here yesterday's general's point of view about how you fight this war. There's the enemy fight it. No, no, no. That's too simple to be smart and work. What we need is this sophisticated counterinsurgency uh, hearts and minds doctrine instead. But in identifying the flaws in the just kill the bad guys approach, he was a hundred percent correct. And anyone can read, he actually, and it's caused a lot of waves at the time that he published a thing uh, at the center for new American security when he was still, you know, an active duty army general, I guess a two star under McChrystal. And he wrote this thing about how bad American intelligence is in Afghanistan. And if you read the whole thing is basically a setup for that's why we need a massive escalation of men and intelligence and everything else. But in his criticism of this, of what are we doing over there? It's just right on. And then contrast that with uh, Donald Trump, um, according to the Bob Woodward book. I, that's a pretty big caveat, I admit. Right. Uh, according to the Bob Woodward book, Trump said, why do we even need a strategy in Afghanistan? You don't need a strategy to kill people. Just kill them. He's not wrong. That's it. And, and in fact, I mean, to a degree, that's true, right? Like if you carpet bombed and killed all the Pashtuns, then all the Pashtuns would be dead and there'd be no one left. If you used H-bombs or if you just used full-scale B-52 carpet bombing campaigns and erase their cities from the map and create a desolation, you could call it peace. That's the only way to do it. And I don't really believe Trump would, you know, I, I guess... If they told him that's what we have to do, I guess he'd go along. But I don't think he really wants to do that because I don't think he cares enough either way. Um, but that's his view of war. And I think that is really a, a, a really dangerous portent. That forget any of this sophisticated Mike Flynn junk, as bad as it is. His idea of winning a war is you kill them all until they scream uncle. That's it. And 
um, you know, that's the kind, that's the uh, level of uh, violence that we haven't seen from the Americans on an outright basis since Vietnam. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a hell of a long, slow grind in Iraq. I don't want to play that down, but I think you understand what I mean. Absolutely. I know you mentioned the, the phrase mowing the grass. And of course, that's typically used by Israel and the Palestinian territories. And I can't help but wonder if the United States is beginning to conduct a foreign policy on a macro scale, which is very comparable to the long running Israeli forever war at the micro scale in the Palestinian territories. And, and if my hypothesis is correct, that is very disturbing because it is a formula for forever war because the Israelis have been doing it for 50 years and it hadn't worked yet. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you know, it's worse than that, honestly, Danny, because, and you know, whenever I try to give a speech about this, you know, not about Afghanistan, but like the broader terror war, I always want to focus on this. And, you know, I only just reread this article the other day for the first time in a few years. And boy, was I right about what an important article this is. It's called the redirection by Seymour Hirsch, and it came out in 2007 in The New Yorker. And what it says is that the government realized, the Bush government realized that, man, we really screwed up and Paul Wolfowitz was wrong. We don't have total dominance over the Shia. They kind of are calling the shots and we're along for their ride and they're closer in bed with Iran. And man, the king of Saudi is furious at us. And so, and we know this from the WikiLeaks, right, where the king is reading Cheney, the riot act. And saying you gave Iraq to Iran on a golden platter. They have the same idiom as us, but they say golden instead of silver. Who would have gone? Who would have guessed, right? But uh, anyway, so um, so they decide we have to make up for that. And this was a big part of the awakening and the the concerned local citizens and all of that, where they started tilting back toward the Sunnis, even in the middle of the war, where they're still actually in the process of helping the Shiites finish the ethnic or the sectarian cleansing campaign in Baghdad, they're already turning back against them again and figuring out how do we appease the Saudis? As you wrote about Danny, uh, just the other week, the Saudis were backing the Sunni, our allies, the Saudis were backing the Sunni based insurgency against the American pro Shiite war there uh, that whole time. So now it's 2006 is time and seven time for the awakening and the surge. And they're also now see, this is the key, right? I should always build this in here. The 9-11 hijackers were all from countries that we're friends with. That's why they attacked us is they hate us because we were too close to their governments. We supported their governments that they wanted to revolt against and couldn't because we hold their governments up. They were not from Iran, Iraq and Syria. Right. So when we, when George Bush accidentally, because he did accidentally, I mean, the war was on purpose, but the result of empowering Iran rather than empowering the Iraqi Shia to have all this influence over Iran, like Wolfowitz promised. Instead, the Iranians had all this Shia, all this influence over the Shia of Iraq, who now because of Bush held the entire capital city and all of this. So how do we make this up to the Saudis? We tilt back towards Saudi power in the region and tried to limit the results of what we'd just done with empowering the so-called Iranian crescent, the Shiite crescent of Iranian power there by including Iraq in it. And so how do we do that? We tilt back toward the Saudis in Lebanon and in Syria. But what does that mean? Right. It's not like Saudis sent a land army to invade. They don't really have much of one because they're afraid it would overthrow them if they did. And so that means that we started back in Al-Qaeda fighters. That George Bush, just five years into the war on terrorism, endorsed a deliberate policy of backing bin Ladenite groups in Lebanon and in Syria 
And then Hirsch wrote another article called Preparing the Battlefield, where it's basically the second half of the same piece, that the U.S. was also backing PJAC, a Kurdish group, basically like the PKK and the YPG. Well, the Iranian version of that is the PJAC. They're also supporting them and supporting a group called Jandala, which is doing horrific terrorist attacks inside Iran, including kidnapping generals and cutting their heads off and uh, you know, bombing buses full of military officers. Can you imagine a, a bus full of American military officers was bombed on some campus in Virginia somewhere or something like that? The holy hell that would rain down. And this is the kind of thing that the Americans were doing already in the Bush administration, the redirection. Oops, we just fought this whole damn war for the Ayatollah Khamenei and his friends. Now we got to appease the Saudi king by doing everything we can to back Sunni interests instead. And that means right then and there, on the face of it, from the very beginning, committing high treason against the American people and the American constitution and backing the only enemies the American people had. It's like the way you frame, because they hate Iran more. So the way you frame it is almost like how horrible it is when they're fighting against these guys. They only make them more and more powerful. But it's worse than that because already now back 12 years ago, they decided that they like the American people's enemies more than they, uh, you know, enough that they'll commit treason to support them against Iran and their interests. And so this is what, you know, first of all, I mean, Gaddafi wasn't really friends with Iran, but he always hated the Saudis and demonized the Saudis and made fun of the Saudis and their robes and their corruption and all this stuff. So they had it in for him. So that was part of the Saudi policy. And then, of course, this is now Obama years. They moved it on to Syria. And, and as Obama explained to Jeffrey Goldberg in the Atlantic, that's right, Jeffrey Goldberg, if we get rid of Assad, that'll help take Iran down a peg. And I don't think they discuss that immediately right in that paragraph, but clearly the subtext is the redirection. The subtext is ever since George Bush Jr. gave Baghdad to Tehran's best friends, now we're looking for consolation prizes. We can't restart Iraq War II and fight the other way and have the army and the Marines help the Sunnis kick all the Shia out of Baghdad now. It's too late for that. So now, well, but we can bring Iran down a peg by getting rid of Assad. Who is, this was part of the Israeli neocon clean break program all along. Assad helps Iran back Hezbollah. In fact, at least that part of it makes sense, right? Because if you read the clean, clean break strategy from 96, they say, oh no, Syria helps Iran back Hezbollah. So we should focus on getting rid of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Huh? Which, of course, only achieved the opposite of what they wanted in empowering that exact same Iranian Shiite alliance against Israel, the country that they put before America. So, um, and it was written by Richard Pearl and David Wormser for Benjamin Netanyahu in 1996, clean break. So that's the policy now. And so we see this also in Yemen, of course, where the Saudis launch a war. They don't have a land army. Their land army are uh, this Islam faction, which are basically the Muslim Brotherhood. But during wartime, they're basically Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And so we have had a, a drone war, a CIA drone war against Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula since 2009, and Trump even doubled it. I'm sure that this is true, that Trump told the military and the CIA, these Al-Qaeda guys in Yemen, kill them. But at the same time, we're fighting the war for them. Saudi and the United Arab Emirates are using the Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State fighters on the ground in Yemen 
in their war against the Houthis that America backs and supports that wouldn't be possible at all without us. And in fact, our war against the Houthis is a hell of a lot more than our war against their enemies, Al-Qaeda. This war from the very beginning has been another war, just like in Syria, another war directly on behalf. You know, when George Bush gave Western Iraq to Osama and Zarqawi, I mean, that was a huge, bad consequence of his decision to start that war. That's not what he intended to do. Rally this massive Sunni insurgency that then would let, you know, Zarqawi and his suicide bombers take the forefront of this thing and cause such chaos. And that was the worst screw up ever, but it was legit. And it was a premeditated murder plot to invade the country. I'm not trying to quit the man for the war, but I'm trying to just say the, the treasonous aspect of the war is really just in effect. But when Obama started the war the way he did in Syria and in Yemen on the side of the Saudis and their al-Qaeda shock troops against their Shiite enemies, that's just treason. There's nothing else to call it. And it isn't because he's some secret Muslim from Kenya. It's because he's Bill Clinton. He's Ronald Reagan. This is what we do. We serve the interests of Saudi power because he's George W. Bush. We serve the interests of Saudi power in the region. And if Iraq War II empowered Iran, then we owe Saudi even more. And we better appease them even more. We better do everything they can. And if that means, you know, suicide bombers get U.S. taxpayer money, then that's just the way it is. Al-Qaeda guys, Bin Ladenites. I mean, in Syria, the Al-Nusra Front, they're sworn loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri, the butcher of New York City. No question about it. The leader of Al-Qaeda, he is the one who gives marching orders from him to Jolani to the rest of the ranks. That's who they are, sworn bayat, blood oath loyal to the enemies of the American people. And, you know, I interviewed Nasser Arabi, who's this great journalist from Sana Yemen the other day. And I says to him, well, look, I mean, the reports are that America's escalated the strikes against AQAP at the same time that um, they're fighting the Houthis. So at least there's that or something, whatever my question was. And he's laughing and like, yeah, no, that's not right. Because if the Americans are attacking Al Qaeda, they're attacking the UAE's army. The Al-Qaeda guys are in the UAE's mercenary foot soldier army on the ground fighting in southern Yemen right now. And you're telling me that the Marines and the CIA are attack or the, the uh, pardon me, special operations forces and, and CIA are targeting and attacking these guys when they're marching in ranks with the UAE's forces? I don't think so. America's war against, which again, is bad enough and which is counterproductive already, which only grows Al-Qaeda even more anyway. This isn't the war against them. This is the war for them. And they're under American protection now, again. And Trump has continued this thing, uh, you know, for now two years. So. Well, you're describing an utterly um, counterproductive U.S. foreign policy that appears to me to be a formula for forever war. And And I sometimes wonder, you know, we just celebrated the 17th anniversary of Afghanistan. I can't help but wonder if we're going to celebrate the 25th because there's, I don't see any indicators that American policy is going to notably change anytime soon. Yeah. I mean, I hate to say, I think you're right about that. And you know what? So here's something that's interesting to me to try to bring up to, to you, Christopher, I know less about your politics. So I'll just pick on Danny. That's all good. We're already friends too. Um, um, you know, I already knew this all along anyway, um, but it's sort of uh, more crystallized in my uh, view recently. And that is that as bad as we need 
good leftists to attack the liberals from the left and try to force them to be anti-war. And we do see Democrats in the House and the Senate who, for example, are good on Libya. I mean, pardon me, on Yemen right now. And that's because of leftist pressure against them. And it's hugely important. So I don't want to dismiss that. I, it's, it, it is what it is. And it's huge. But it kind of goes without saying, doesn't it, in American society that liberals, broadly speaking, I don't mean in power in D.C., but I mean the real human beings out here in the country are anti-war. If, if nothing else, just kind of as a legacy of Vietnam, they don't favor it. Now, if Obama's doing it, they'll look the other way. I'm not saying that. Um, but they're not really the biggest cheerleaders for the war. And the idea basically is that they would always be anti-war, even if it was like a really good one. That what are you going to do? Ask a bunch of hippies to lead the charge or something like that, right? It's up to tough, macho, right-wing soldier dudes to go and do all the fighting. And so therefore it's up to the right to, to make the decisions um, about what's important. So, you know, any anti-war argument, any of the three of us ever make the right wingers immediate rejoinder is of course, Oh yeah. Well, what about security? Right? Cause somebody around here has to be the tough guy and do the protecting. I'm talking to two combat veterans. I think you guys know what I'm talking about. Right? So, but the, but the thing of it is that, so that's where we got to meet them. And that's where we have to win. The argument is on the right because the common conception for everyone in America who's not a liberal or a leftist is basically that it doesn't matter what their view is because it's going to be kind of unchanging. What really matters is what the common American conception is, the common understanding of what does the right think. And more importantly, when Trump who is the one in charge here when he's spacing out and looking out his oval office window and in his imagination, the American people are out there and particularly Republican voters are out there. What does he think they think? He doesn't care what a bunch of whiny liberals think. He only cares whether the right says, yeah, kick ass or whether the right says enough is enough already. Let's go ahead and call it off. Cause I don't think we can have wartime all the time or whatever it is. Right. So, um, it, I think it's, you know, really incumbent on us to, to, and, and it comes easier for me cause I'm a libertarian. So my personal opinion of my own opinions is that anything that right-wingers are good on, I'm even better. And anything that left-wingers are good on, I'm even better. And the things that y'all are bad on, I'm way better, right? But so I can always attack the right from the right. That ultimately, this grand strategy of global dominance is kind of a liberal sociology project gone mad. And there's nothing conservative about it. It doesn't protect American interests. It doesn't protect American power. Really, it, it is at the expense of American power and influence, if that's your concern. It's at the expense of soldiers' lives. It's at the expense of trillions of dollars. And as Donald Trump would say, what do we get out of it? A totalitarian, lawless police state, uh, a $21 trillion national debt. So who supports the war? Who supports the war? Like upper middle class business, owner, business owners, professionals, doctors and dentists and homeowners and boat owners and, and you know people who feel like this really, this system is for them. They're the ones who support the war and they're the ones whose opinion matters when they turn against it. And so let me further this one more thing. I'm sorry, I'm rambling here, but here's the real point. The right wingers are just about over it now. You know, Jeb Bush brought out George Jr. to run with him in South Carolina. He got last. 
Donald Trump denounced the Iraq war in South Carolina, the most heavily militarized state in the union, and said Bush lied us into war in the debate. The next day, he got two thirds of the vote. The other 17 candidates got one third. And Jeb was destroyed. And Jeb had brought Junior out to say, hey, remember me, the guy that lied you into war and got your little brother killed and all this? And it absolutely was. It went over like a lead balloon. It was a huge disaster. And the way that he won the presidency, well, it didn't hurt that even though he said a lot of hawkish stuff about killing people and killing terrorists and stuff, he also attacked Hillary Clinton for all the reckless wars of Bill Clinton, George Bush, and Barack Obama, because after all, she was a little bit responsible for all of them, wasn't she? And that she was trigger-happy Hillary in on this consensus of liberal do-gooder, know-nothing, know-it-all, school-marm interventionism, putting America in the role of the global policeman, as right-wingers put it, um, and uh, the role that we should not be playing. And here's my concern. I think that and Danny, I'm picking on you because Christopher, I don't know you as well, that when, when you folk, when you have such a comparative advantage as even active duty at this point, uh, combat veteran um, and, and all of your experience in Iraq War II and in Afghanistan, when you come out with all this socialist stuff about welfare programs and global warming and all of this stuff, you're basically seeding all of your macho away. What you're saying is I used to be a soldier. Now I'm a hippie. Now I'm Jane Fonda. Now I've gone soft. Now, you know, I, I'm, you know, these are all like not words you're saying out loud. I'm just saying it's impressions people get is that like at, like at Vietnam, the soldiers who came home and turned against Vietnam were the, the stereotype at least is they grew their hair long. They started hanging out with leftists and they started hating America itself and whatever kind of thing that basically negated everything important they had to say about the war. And in fact, look at, and I'll make it not so personal, look at veterans for peace, a huge number of whom are even combat veterans as well, right? Thousands of members across the country. And yet right there on their logo is the word peace, which means, yeah, right. You're hopeful, but welcome to the real world. You can dismiss that immediately, right? If you're anyone to the right of anything, you dismiss that immediately. And then it has a big dove. Like, yeah, right. You know what? One day when Jesus comes back, then we'll all rub butts in fields of flowers and there'll be doves flying everywhere and it'll be great. But until then, the tough guys have to take care of our security needs. And so you have this entire organization, Veterans for Peace, who have seeded away all of their macho by proclaiming that they're a bunch of leftists, by proclaiming that it isn't just this war or the wars, the 20th century terror wars, the American empire overseas, but it's the entire American system, they want to see it replaced with communism. I just saw a thing the other day where it's the guy on the board of directors of Veterans for Peace is Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine, who I actually respect, but I think that's really the wrong job description for him to have an avowed communist saying, yeah, that's who anti-war veterans are, guys who come home from the war and turn into communists. And meanwhile, look at the comparative advantage you just drop all the socialist crap and just stick to the war and talk to right-wingers like right-wingers, like you too are concerned about security. And that's why you're anti-war because this isn't working. This is the wrong thing to do. And I think just take the opposite example. What if veterans for peace, because they were all a bunch of army and Marines and stuff, what if they really were all very conservative? 
What if they didn't have leftist leadership? What if they didn't have peace and doves? And what if they didn't, you know, go around whining about democracy and, and public education funding and stuff? And they, what if they were right wingers, basically? What if they were flag waving, Jesus believing patriots? And they were just saying, listen, we are tough, but we're also smart. And so we've had enough of this. It's wrong. You're sacrificing soldiers for nothing, for things that we know are wrong already. And we're going to keep doing it. No, that that's the argument. Right. And, and so um, that's my encouragement to you guys is like, and, and I'll teach you about libertarianism too, and divorce you, all this socialist economic nonsense anyway, but that's not really the point. The point is y'all's comparative advantage is in attacking the right from the right and caring so much about American security that you want an end to the empire immediately because it's the most counterproductive thing you could do if you're trying to keep the American people safe and free. With that kind of argument, I think we can get a hell of a lot further. So, I, Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you about that. I mean, I, certainly I can't divorce myself from my own uh, political points of view, but I do try to focus my writing on foreign policy. And I do try to focus on the things that I really know about precisely because of what you're saying. You know, that's why I've done work for defense priorities. That's why I write on a lot of libertarian websites. And I often leave most of my domestic policies aside because really what we need is an alliance between the left and the libertarian right on foreign policy. There needs to be, you know, I have to be careful that people don't dismiss me out of hand, as you've mentioned. And, and the way I try to do that is to stay in my lane and to focus on, you know, the absurdity of American foreign policy. Hey, everyone. I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. But truth be told, I need your help. No, I don't need you to move a couch or borrow a leaf blower. No, I need you to hit pause on your podcasting app right now and share this episode with somebody you know, somebody who you might think might be receptive to it. It could be a a friend or relative who's considering joining the military or a veteran you know who might be interested in in hearing a little more truth in their news about uh, military and veterans. We rely on you all to help us reach as many people as possible. So please hit that pause button right now and share this episode with somebody. Sharing all done? Good. Okay, good deal. I know Uncle Al will cuss a lot listening to the episode, but he'll appreciate it when the cursing stops. Now I want to mention something about Patreon. We are always in the market for more Patreon supporters. So if you get the chance, please come out and support us. You can support us for as little as a dollar a month. And what do you get for your dollar, you ask? Well, you get a one-minute drop on any topic you choose once a month. Just email us your question or comment, and we'll give it the old Henry Danny breakdown on air. Guaranteed to have 60 seconds of our time. We may spend more on it. Um, We prefer to do military and veteran topics, but whatever topic you think might be pertinent. And we may spend a whole bunch more time talking about it, depending on the topic. And for contributors, a bit north of a dollar a month, we have some bonus episodes, some essays of mine, and a few other things as well. 
we're still in the process of, of building our rewards. So if you have any suggestions for Patreon rewards, please let me know. I'd like to take a moment here and thank by name our four honorary producers that are supporting us on a Patreon. And they are Matthew Ho, Will Arens, Gage Counts, and Fahim Shirazi. Anyone who contributes $10 or more on Patreon each month will be listed as an honorary producer. To everyone else who contributes on Patreon, thank you so much as well. Your response has been really wonderful.